Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, a psychiatrist and author reflects on his diagnosis of and life with metastatic kidney cancer. If you look at uh, survival curves, which I wouldn't recommend to most people uh, living with cancer, uh, you know, you, you can see yourself in those curves uh, and find that very depressing, or you can see yourself on the tail, what's known as the tail of those Kaplan-Meier survival curves, and see and, and imagine a very long and fruitful life after this kind of diagnosis. And a urologist who specializes in kidney cancer goes over the warning signs, diagnosis, and treatment. So it's a very complicated question because uh, kidney cancer overall is a surgical disease. In other words, uh, surgery is the mainstay of therapy uh, for uh, kidney cancer. All that, plus a selection from The Healing Muse, right after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore health, science, and medicine with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. Today, we'll learn about the symptoms, diagnosis, and treatment of kidney cancer from a urologist who specializes in kidney cancer care. But first, we'll talk with a psychiatrist who graduated from Upstate about how he has processed the dire diagnosis of kidney cancer he received almost 18 months ago. What is it like to live with a dire diagnosis? Today, we're going to talk about that with a psychiatrist who has kidney cancer. Dr. Adam Stern is a graduate of Upstate Medical University, who is now an assistant professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. He's written extensively about his experience, and today he joins me by phone. Welcome, Dr. Stern. Hi, it's a pleasure to speak with you. Now, you've been living with the diagnosis of kidney cancer since January 2018. Uh, how are you doing, and, and what's your current prognosis? I'm doing pretty well. Uh, every day is um, unique, and, and I try to approach it as, as a, um, a unique experience uh, with, with all kinds of potential for, for good and bad. Um, so I've had some ups and downs in recent months. Uh, my prognosis is uncertain. Uh, you know, I'm living with um, metastatic kidney cancer, and what that means is that the cancer has uh, spread beyond just the kidney uh, itself. And so I do have some nodules in my lungs. I've been on some of these cutting-edge immunotherapies that have just been uh, approved and continue to be explored and investigated every single uh, month. It seems like there's a new uh, FDA-cleared drug that, that comes out, or a new, excuse me, a new study that um, uh, comes out that's very exciting. And so the future is very bright for a lot of cancer patients, and I hope that I am someone who benefits from that, along with everybody else who's uh, been struggling with this disease. Would you tell us how you learned that you had kidney cancer? What were your symptoms? Sure. So, um, you know, everything is always different in hindsight, of course. Uh, so uh, looking back, I started to notice um, that I had some unintentional weight loss, which is often a sign of cancer um, in hindsight for, for people. Um, you know, I've always been someone, if I've wanted to lose weight, I've had to be very mindful of what, I, what I've eaten, and I've had to diet and exercise as best I could. Uh, and that wasn't the case uh, a couple of years ago. I started noticing that I was eating anything that I wanted to and still uh, dropping a couple of pounds. And then the weight loss started to accelerate, uh, really, to the point where at, at, at its worst, I was losing about one pound a day. Um, and I lost a, a total of 25 or 30 pounds. Uh, by the time I was actually diagnosed and treated. Mm -hmm. um, in addition to that, I was having night sweats, which was uh, something that I rationalized. Uh, I asked my wife uh, how she was doing uh, at night, and she said that she was also having some sweats, and we uh, had recently changed the bedding on our on our bed. And, you know, so your mind can do a lot of things when you're uh, not feeling well to convince yourself that actually things are okay. Um, and it wasn't until... I had what's called gross hematuria, which is actually a little bit of blood and urine that uh, triggered my sort of the alarm bells to go off and, and really for me to go in and have a, an emergency workup, which revealed the diagnosis within about 24 hours. Wow. And it was so you learned within 24 hours that it was kidney cancer. You didn't know it was metastatic. No, in fact, I didn't know it was metastatic for the first year that I had the disease that mm -hmm. I knew I had the disease. 
Uh, so um, I was diagnosed, at the time of diagnosis, there was a 10-centimeter mass on my left kidney, uh, which was diagnosed on imaging, on CT scan. And in fact, I, I as a physician, um, made the mistake, I would, I would argue, uh, of, of being impatient uh, and get, going down to medical records, getting the images on disk, and looking at them myself before the phone call came in. Um, and even as a psychiatrist, uh, what I saw on, in front of me on the screen was pretty clear uh, that in that left kidney there was something very terrible happening. Um, and so I knew something was terribly wrong, uh, both from the imaging and the lab results, which were just all over the place, uh, before I got the phone call back from my primary care doctor on that late Friday afternoon. I, I really didn't want to go through the whole weekend without knowing what was going on. It was about 5 p.m., and my original intent was actually to bring the disc to my own hospital and find a radiologist who would be kind enough to look at it with me. I couldn't find anyone. So in the end, I ended up just putting the disc in myself, seeing what was on the screen in front of me, and then actually within half an hour getting that phone call from the primary care doctor who had spoken to the radiologist with the with the uh, diagnosis. So you sort of had an idea of what was coming. Very much so, yeah. That had to be uh, difficult to deal with just to, to manage your feelings about that, right? Yes. Uh, there was a, a really a 24-hour period from the time I got labs drawn to the time that I knew what the diagnosis was, where we, my wife and I, had a sense something terrible was happening, but we just had we couldn't really uh, figure out what. Uh, kidney cancer is something that is most often diagnosed in men between the ages of 50 and 70. It can be diagnosed in women and as a case in point, it can be diagnosed outside of that age range, too. But in terms of the differential, I was certainly hoping that something much more benign, like a kidney stone, uh, was, was going to pop higher on the list. Um, and as, as you mentioned, uh, uh, I didn't know that it was metastatic at the time of diagnosis. So uh, I did have a, a CT scan, of that's a CAT scan, of my uh, entire uh, chest, abdomen, and pelvis uh, that showed these tiny little nodules in my lungs. But they were so small two millimeters, three millimeters, the largest was four millimeters, that uh, actually a lot of us in real life just walk around with these kinds of benign nodules all the time. And so my clinical team actually um, said that, you know, we really don't know what these are. We'll just keep an eye on them. So we went forward as though I were stage three, meaning that the cancer was was localized, uh, was limited to the local region. Uh, I had my kidney removed within a week, which was a really rapid turnaround. And one of the things I'd like to convey is just how fortunate I am to have access to such excellent medical care. Um, Are you, I, you know, uh, being treated at at Harvard or at yeah, the hospital? Yeah, so one of the the there are a number of uh, cancer centers within the Harvard Medical School system, and one of them is called Dana Farber Cancer Institute, and that's where my particular care is. Uh, and so um, uh, I also uh, when when surgeries happen or when I have to have other medical care, it's through the uh, Brigham and Women's Hospital System, and they okay. work very closely together. And we should say, you're in your 30s, right? That's correct. Uh, yeah, I, I didn't uh, mention that in the beginning. Yes, I'm uh, 34. Uh, by the time this runs, I might even be 35 years old. So unusual to see kidney cancer in someone that young. Not unheard of, but unusual. Right. There are a few forms that are um, more hereditary, that are known to be hereditary and, and uh, inherited by your parents uh, by 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 um, through uh, genetic you know passing of of, of inherent risk and um, my kind of cancer I did have genetic testing but my kind of cancer did not show up as having hereditary risk although in fact after I was diagnosed it actually became evident that I do have a pretty extensive family history of this just not in my immediate family so uh, my great grandfather had some sort of kidney condition where he had to have his kidney removed, and, and at that time, no one really knew what it was. We didn't have the same kind of pathology testing that we have today. Uh, one of his children uh, had kidney cancer, and uh, one of his children, so my first cousin once removed. So, in fact, uh, there's a great deal of risk in my family. I just didn't know about it. Huh. 
Okay. Uh, this is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Dr. Adam Stern, an Upstate graduate who's now an assistant professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School, and we're talking about what his life has been like since he was diagnosed with kidney cancer in January 2018. Now, I want to let listeners know you've done quite a bit of writing about your experiences and what you're going through. We're going to link to some of your essays from the healthlinkonair.org website, but people can also Google the name Adam Stern. Um, you've been published in the Journal of the American Medical Association, the New England Journal of Medicine, the Boston Globe, the New York Times. You've done quite a bit of writing. Now, during your time at Upstate, you won the Bruce Deering Writing Award. So when did you start writing? Was... <laughs> it, um, I'm glad that you brought that up. I didn't know that you knew about that. Um, I Some of my favorite experiences at Upstate uh, were working with a wonderful faculty member named Deirdre Nealon. Uh, who actually mentored me in my creative writing in this nonfiction uh, or even fiction uh, category uh, within the medical humanities. That was some of my favorite uh, wonderful experiences that I can remember uh, at my time in Syracuse. So um, were, were you a writer before medical school? Did you do a lot of writing in high school? Yeah, you know, I've always been, I've always felt as though from the outside it probably looked like I had two distinct uh, lives. I have the sort of academic physician life and brain where I'm um, uh, science-oriented. My area of investigation is in neuroplasticity uh, and how it relates to treatment response with non-invasive brain stimulation. So there's this very sciencey aspect to me. And then there's a whole separate part of my brain that's devoted to uh, create creative endeavors and writing and, and reading and being interested in storytelling and stories themselves. And I think that's part of what drew me to psychiatry is that every patient comes to you with a, a story and that uh, it is as, as far from cookbook medicine as, as you can get in the sense that um, uh, every patient is really must be treated as an individual, otherwise you're really not doing them a, a, good, a good service. Well, now you're, uh, you're published in some medical journals and then in some newspapers. So talk to me about how you approach writing for the different audiences, the medical professionals versus regular people. Do, do you approach it differently? That's a good question. Um, I think that the biggest difference, you know, the, the, the first thing that I'd like to convey is that medical professionals are um, human beings as well. And so uh, you can often write something uh, that is aimed at a general audience, and then, which is what I, which is what I generally tend to do. I'll have an idea; it'll strike me in the middle of the night or uh, first thing in the morning, and I'm just inspired to get something down on paper, you know. And I'll write something, and then after I've written it, I'll say, okay, where would this be most appropriate? Who would want to read this? Who would actually connect with this piece? And that's usually where I might do a little bit of tweaking in terms of the language used. So it's mostly uh, an issue of uh, jargon, making sure that I'm not using too much medical jargon if it's going into a, a lay publication, uh, or if it is going into a medical publication, making sure that I describe things in a language that, that is well understood and sort of expected. Sure. Did you have any hesitation about sharing such a personal story? You know, I did only from the sense that I didn't want it to negatively impact my relationship with my patient. Um, that's been a real concern uh, to what extent uh, patients might be impacted by having a physician who they know is sick um, or struggling with a chronic illness or an illness that could be potentially lethal and potentially soon. Uh, you know, there's, you know, you asked earlier about my prognosis and the answer to that is very much uncertain. Um, if you look at uh, survival curves, which I wouldn't recommend to most people uh, living with cancer, uh, you know, you, you can see yourself in those curves uh, and find that very depressing, or you can see yourself on the tail, what's known as the tail of those Kaplan-Meier survival curves, and see and, and imagine a very long and fruitful life after this kind of diagnosis. Uh, and so it's a much more healthy thing to do to uh, do the latter, I would say. Now, do your so, patients, do, excuse me, do your patients know, have they read your essays? Do they know what you're going through? So generally, my rule of thumb was to uh, meet the patients where they were. And so for some of my patients, you know, I was suddenly and inexplicably absent for about a six-week period after my nephrectomy. That's the surgical removal of my kidney. And so for those patients, they just received... Uh, a message basically from the clinic director saying, oh, Dr. Stern is out. 
uh, here's your coverage. And then I was back, uh, and I looked a lot thinner than they remembered me, you know. And so for some of them, they wanted to know. I could tell by, by the way that they asked how I was uh, doing or how I was gone or why I was gone. And for some of them, we spoke very openly about it. And for others, uh, I followed their lead, and it seemed like, you know, they wanted to just get right back to the business of, of their own care. And so some patients to this day either don't know or don't want to know. Uh, and I haven't yet had too many patients say that they've stumbled upon my writing, uh, and that's how they learned. But for those that have, they say that they're glad that they know, uh, because for the most part, patients who work with psychiatrists always wish they knew more about the, the psychiatrist than they do. Uh, generally, as a rule of thumb, we, we only disclose things to our patients that we think might be helpful to them in their own care and never as a result of our own wanting to share. And so that's the approach that I tend to take. Now, in one of your essays, you talk about the struggle and, and how you never imagined that a healthy left kidney could be so consequential for the practice of psychiatry. Um, yeah. what, what did you mean by that? Yeah, so that was a little bit tongue in cheek. I, I certainly, you know, the last thing you you think you think of a, generally people will think of um, psychiatric practice as a very cerebral kind of activity. Uh, that there's not a lot that involves, uh, you know, your visceral organs involved in psychiatry. Um, there are a few subspecialties within medicine where where they say all you really need is a very good chair. You know, for example, mm. psychiatry is one of those. Um, but uh, in fact, I found that once my diagnosis occurred and I had that surgery that, that and I began treatment, uh, treatment that frankly will go on for the rest of my career and life, um, I found that my medical practice was affected. So for the first several months after I returned to work, uh, I had a, somewhat of a difficulty empathizing with patients in the same way that I did before. Um, I noticed the empathy. I, I noticed that I could say the right things. I knew what I was supposed to say and how I was supposed to react to certain patients, but I didn't feel it in the same way that I felt it prior to the diagnosis. And that bothered me because I've always been a very empathic psychiatrist. That's how I pride myself, that I can connect with patients at an emotional level in addition to knowing what antidepressant or what uh, mood-stabilizing medication or what kind of therapy might, might be best for them. And so I found that that was very difficult. And like a lot of major life changes, I found that just by existing in my own body and mind over time, I regained the ability to empathize with patients. I regained those parts of myself and those parts of my career, and uh, that's been a somewhat of a blessing that I've been able to return to work in a way that feels right. And in addition to that, I've also changed my approach to work. I've actually uh, limited my job to the parts of my job that um, I can. I feel like I can really do with passion and, and do well. And the parts of my job that I didn't feel I could do that for, I've had to shut down or, or take a step back from. And that's been an adjustment for both me and my patients. We'll be right back with more from Dr. Stern after a quick break. Thanks for listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. We're back with Dr. Adam Stern, who has referred to himself in some of his writings as the voice of kidney cancer. You talk in one of your essays about being in psychotherapy yourself for help finding a balance in a world that seems to be filled only with dread, fear, and angst. Do you still feel dread, fear, and angst? You know, I do. A lot of people will ask me if being a psychiatrist has helped protect me from those things. And the truth is that uh, it, it hasn't, in my opinion, uh, to a great degree, because I'm a human being first, and I experience those kinds of emotions after a life sort of altering diagnosis like this, just like anybody else. Often I'll find that I know what I would tell a patient. I know uh, how I would direct them to deal with certain feelings or, or uh, thoughts or emotions, behaviors, um, and yet I still have trouble doing that in any kind of um, effective way to prevent uh, the the typical coping um, the typical the, excuse me the typical difficulties that people have after a major diagnosis like this and so I'm glad that you brought up the topic of psychotherapy because I one of my goals is to help destigmatize psychotherapy which is which is such 
complicated and often uh, it's a topic that people only speak about in in, in privacy or uh, with their closest uh, loved ones. Um, but it's something that I have found immensely helpful as as a as a person who wants there to be a place where I can talk about anything that I'm going through. Uh, I, f- I really feel that that my uh, experience in therapy has been very helpful over the last year and a half. Does it help you put um, worries aside, or, or how do you deal with? I mean, there must be a lot of things on your mind. So, how do you get through your day without getting sidetracked into the different worries? That's a great question. You know, I think that you're right that there's a lot on my mind, uh, just as there is for everybody. But in particular, I have this underlying level of sort of anxiety about what the future may hold. And I've written about this extensively in in some of the essays you've mentioned. Um, And so I actually find that my day, the busier I am with things like work or recreation, time with my family, uh, I have a little boy at home who's two years old that uh, I love spending time with and I love spending time with my wife and and the rest of my family. Um, Those things are useful because for for moments I actually forget maybe what's going on and I actually am able to be mindful of of what I'm doing and and be in the moment with 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 those activities. Um, those are the best moments of my day. Um, what I do with the rest of those moments, the rest of the day, and and which which can be sometimes overwhelmed with fear or anxiety, uh, is a challenge. And that's where the therapy I think comes in. Uh, it's a place where I can bring in those things, and it doesn't help me escape from uh, fears or anxiety, but rather it's a place where I find acceptance in those thoughts and fears and actually um, a place where I discover ways of coping. Do you have trouble sleeping? You know, sometimes I do, um, but in fact, more often than not, that has been uh, what we in in medicine will refer to as an iatrogenic uh, symptom, which means that it's been brought on by medical treatment. Um, and um, what I mean by that is, uh, for example, last month I had to go on steroids for side effects from some of the immunotherapies that I was on. And the steroids uh, made it so that I couldn't fall asleep till about one thirty every night. And then I would wake up at 4.30 or 5 a.m. ready to go. And I've never been a morning person in my entire life. But uh, I found that, that that was happening when I was on these higher doses of the steroids. Uh, so there have been a few things like that that have changed basic components of my life uh, for, for periods of time. I'm happy to report that I'm now off the steroids and sleeping well again. Okay. Now, you've written in uh, one of your essays, at least one of them, about your son and how valuable it is to you that he treats you like dad and doesn't know that you're ill. Um, yeah, I was thinking about it. You know, in my immediate orbit, he's really the only person in my life who doesn't know that I'm sick. And then if you broaden the circle a little bit, if you extend it to, like, my nieces and my nephew, who are, you know, range in age, you know, from four to seven, um, then, you know, you have, a, you have a range of people in my in my extended family where, where that's true, too. And so those little kids in my life, uh, especially my son, though, who I see every day, um, they really... Uh, are such a gift to me. I, I think that it's such an amazing opportunity to interact with someone where the interaction is completely genuine uh, from their end. They have no idea what's going on in terms of my illness. And so, uh, you know, for my son, it's just, I'm just dead, you know, uh, and, and that is a, a real pleasure. And it means sometimes he can be, um, you know, he's a two-year-old, so he can be oppositional. Uh, sometimes it can be, it can present itself in very, um, adorable and frustrating ways in various in, in, in equal parts, I would say. All right. Well, uh, the, the New York Times essay that you wrote generated many comments online. One of the commenters asked about our culture's inability to accept dying as a natural part of life. The commenter said, our medical industrial complex has morphed into a technological horror. Um, have you thought about that? Do you have any opinion on, on that? Yeah, I think that the commenter is hitting uh, on something very real there because I do think that as a society, death and the concept of death is very much stigmatized. Uh, You know, very often I have this sense when people ask how I'm doing or how my prognosis is, what my prognosis is, or what the 
the real-life um, version of how this may play out is that they want to hear only the positives, you know, and that's only human nature. And so I do think that society as a whole would do well to actually move toward a more accepting place with regard to death and dying. Uh, um, Atul Gawande, who's on faculty here at, at Harvard Medical School, uh, has written a wonderful book called uh, Being Mortal that, that's all about this topic. Uh, and I think it's a, it's a, a terrific place to start for anyone who's interested in this topic. Uh, at the same time, I want to be careful when I hear or read anything that's sort of dismissive of this uh, medical industrial complex. I want to be careful because I think that I owe so much to the medical providers and the system that is taking care of me. Uh, I have exceptional care, and I know that uh, the, the folks at Upstate who are getting their care at Upstate also have that kind of excellent care. Um, and that kind of um, system doesn't happen by accident. Uh, that kind of, you know, the drugs that, that I'm receiving are cutting edge and have only become available because of this so quote-unquote medical industrial complex. Uh, the doctors who are taking care of me are doing so not because they only because they want to help people, but because there's a system in place that allows them to do that. And so I think if you can combine the best of both worlds, the human element of medicine, uh, you know, and where I work, which is Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center, the, the slogan here, you'll see it plastered on the walls, is human first. Uh, and I think that that's an excellent way of going about medicine, uh, maintaining your humanity while working within the system that's designed to help patients and help the most patients possible. All right. Have you yourself um, found any positive aspects of what you're going through? You know, Has I have. It's really changed my entire perspective, um, starting with trying to live every single day. This is going to sound like a cliche. Every time I start to say it, I have to stop myself because it sounds so cliched, but, it, but it's a cliche for a reason, which is that I've learned to live every day as well as I can. And by that, I mean with as much meaning and purpose as I can. So I used to be someone who said yes to almost everything at work, at home, uh, in family life. If something were asked of me, uh, I was generally a people pleaser and, and would say, okay, I can do that at some point. I'll, I'll, um, I'll do that project. I'll do that task. I'll attend that event. Um, and I've stopped doing that. I now only say yes to things that I think actually will uh, align with this vision of, of who I want to be and how I want to spend the time that I have. And that applies across the board to all these different aspects of my life. And that's a gift that I wish people, including you know people close to me and, and including all of the listeners at home that might be listening to this, I, I don't think that people should uh, wait until they are diagnosed with something like cancer or, or another potentially uh, life-threatening condition before they start to live their lives this way. Well, something you said earlier stuck with me about being mindful and that, you know, that really, those are the moments that stay with you throughout the day is the times when you're mindful and really engaged in, in what you're doing. So Absolutely. And, and it's something that you have to be open to uh, catching those perfect moments when they're available. Um, and, you know, like with my son, that was that um, essay that I wrote for the Boston Globe magazine about being, being ready uh, to catch the moments, those perfect moments when they happen. Uh, and, and that's true across the board in all aspects of life as well. Uh, and being mindful of living each day as best you can, each moment as best you can, uh, these are things that to some extent are cliched, but to some extent really make a difference. And I would go one step further uh, and say that I've taken up the practice of trying to actively pursue gratitude. This is, sounds strange, right? How do you pursue gratitude? But actually, there are steps you can take, like at the end of your day, thinking of things that went well today, thinking of things that, you're, that you appreciate today, uh, even keeping a journal of those things or sharing those things with, with the ones that you love. Uh, those are ways that you can actually feel better about how your life is going and appreciate the things that are going well in your life, even when things are tough. Oh, good advice. Well, I, I want to ask you also about the medical psychiatric cartoon book that you have out, um, Shrunk MD. Yep. This, this is a fundraiser, right, for KC Cure. Can you tell us about that? Absolutely. So once I was diagnosed, and I think a lot of patients with, with diseases uh, will, will sort of connect with this concept, 
I found that there were so many uncertainties in life that I really wanted to have agency in something. I really wanted to make a difference with the disease, with uh, trying to find a cure in any way that I could. So one of the things that I can do is write about it and hopefully connect with, with a lot of people out there who might be struggling or, or feeling alone in what they're going through. And one of the other things that I could do is try to fundraise for these organizations that, I, that I've discovered uh, that are trying to actually make a difference by funding innovative research. So the uh, Casey Cure is one of them. Kidney Cancer uh, Action Network is another one. Um, the Kidney Cancer Association uh, is another one. Um, these are all groups that are really dedicated toward making a difference with this disease that I have worked with. Uh, the Jimmy Fund at Dana-Farber Cancer Institute uh, funds research at, my, at, at the institution where I'm actually receiving care. All these are, are places that I have worked to try to contribute to in a grassroots kind of way. Um, and so uh, one of the ways that I processed my diagnosis I found was by doodling, drawing these cartoons. They're, on my best days, I like to think of them as New Yorker-style cartoons. But in, in, in fact, you know, uh, I think that they're, they're closer to uh, the far side or, or something else uh, that are a little bit more, um, you know, not, not quite as highbrow, I would say, as, as the New Yorker. Okay. But most of them have to do with medicine, being a doctor, being a psychiatrist, being a therapist. And uh, they always, they never poke fun at, my, my goal is to poke fun at, at the doctors, at the psychiatrists, therapists, and, and sort of what make us who we are, um, and never at the patients. Um, and so uh, 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 about a month ago, I had the idea that, you know, if I put out a book of these cartoons, about 30 of them that I'd done that I was sort of proud of, uh, I bet I could get a few hundred people to buy the book for for an over uh an overpriced, you know, $25 a book, let's say, uh, they would do that if they knew that the money was going to go toward kidney cancer research. So I actually uh, messaged individually about 300 people that I know, said, hey, I'm putting out this book. It's not through a publishing house or anything like that. It's just sort of self-published and available on Amazon. And uh, the book is called Shrunk MD. I don't mean to be too promotional, but uh, if anyone's interested in it. Um, and the, the author royalties are all going to this kidney cancer um, uh, research uh, KC foundation, KC Cure. And um, I, in fact, the first hundred people that bought the book, I, I told them I would match their donation. And so uh, we've raised over $6,000 for this um, foundation. And I, I think it's, it's, it's an example of something that I wasn't sure if I should do. I'm not sure that I would have done it had I not been awake late into the wee hours of the morning. Um, and in fact, it's it's something that I'm so happy that I did. So it's it's a lesson to be learned in terms of if you're on the fence about pursuing some random dream of yours, just go for it. The worst case scenario is that it doesn't work out. Uh, and the best case scenario is that you actually do something that you're happy with, that, that you can remember and be proud of. Uh, and in fact, that first night that the book was available, uh, all of those purchases got the book uh, listed in the top 100 of all books on Amazon for new releases. That's terrific. I want to thank you for sharing your story. And I want to let listeners know that at the end of this program, Deirdre Nealon, the editor of the literary journal The Healing Muse, will read an excerpt from Dr. Stern's writing. My guest has been Harvard Assistant Professor of Psychiatry and Upstate graduate Dr. Adam Stern. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Coming up next, a urologist shares what symptoms could indicate kidney cancer. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. The incidence of kidney cancer seems to be increasing, although that may be because imaging techniques such as CT scans are being used more often, leading to accidental discovery of kidney cancer. With me in the HealthLink on Air studio to talk about kidney cancer is Associate Professor and Vice Chair of Urology, Dr. Oleg Shapiro. 
Thank you for being here, Dr. Shapiro. Good morning. So I've heard there's different types of kidney cancer, the most common one being renal cell carcinoma. Can you explain what happens in renal cell carcinoma? Sure. So that that different types of kidney cancer, uh, all of them can be called renal cell carcinoma, but even within the uh, umbrella of renal cell carcinoma, there are different subtypes, and all of them behave very differently. Um, and uh, a physician, uh, whether it's a urologist or an oncologist, uh, does have to know what kind of kidney cancer it is to tailor the treatment for that particular disease. Uh, aside from accidental discoveries, how do people usually find out that they have kidney cancer? Right, so that's a very good question. Again, most of the time, you're absolutely correct. In the 21st century, it's found incidentally. So um, I wouldn't call it an accident. I would call it an incident, if you will. Uh, people do get scanned, uh, do get CAT scans or MRIs for various reasons because this is the most favorite uh, diagnostic tool of almost all physicians these days. And we do find small, um, not uh, symptomatic kidney tumors, and most of them are malignant. Um, uh, if pe people have more advanced disease, they can present with pain, they can present with uh, blood in the urine, or they can present with actually abdominal mass, but that only happens uh, about 10% of the time, if, if maybe even less than that. So you may feel healthy and then find out that, that day that you have... That's exactly right. Most of the people with kidney cancer feel absolutely nothing, even if the tumor is very large. Wow. Now, uh, do we know what causes kidney cancer? So we don't know for sure. Uh, a lot of it is genetic. Um, so the smoking is always a risk factor for, uh, for everything. But uh, uh, again, with, there's no defined risk factor such as uh, uh, such, such diseases as lung cancer or bladder cancer that we know that smoking is a huge risk factor or environmental exposure is a huge risk factor for those diseases. Kidney cancer, we cannot say the same. Uh, does it affect people of a certain age? Uh, traditionally speaking, uh, the, this is a more common diagnosis in older population. And by older, you, we're talking about 60, 70, 80-year-olds, uh, which makes sense. The older we live, the more likely we develop some sure. kind of cancer. But uh, we are starting to find more and more uh, cancers in younger and younger people, again, likely due to scanning. Um, but we don't know which one of those people will actually come back to us when they're 60, 70, or 80 with much bigger tumors, which might much more clinically significant cancers. So if you would, please walk me through. It's, it sounds like patients come to see you after they've maybe seen been seen something on a scan. Um, how do you go about diagnosing whether it is kidney cancer? Uh, that's a great question. So people, uh, of course, get very nervous when they hear they have a mass or a spot or a tumor on, on a kidney. Uh, we, we do a special kind of CAT scan that uh, people get dye uh, through the vein to see if this mass or the spot or whatever you want to call it lights up or enhances on a CAT scan. If something lights up uh, on a CAT scan, it tells us that it has about 70 to 80% chance of being malignant. So in some centers, a biopsy is utilized uh, to make a definitive diagnosis and to guide the treatment. But uh, biopsies historically have been relatively inaccurate, um, not as much in 2019, uh, but in the past they have been. So if something does light up on a CT, the uh, discussion moves towards treatment without the biopsy because we 80% of the time know what it is, and it's usually malignant. That's, I, I heard you say that before. If, now, if it doesn't light up, it's just an abnormality that is probably not cancerous? Correct. So if it doesn't light, light up, it could be a cyst, a simple cyst. It could be a complex cyst, uh, or it could be a cyst that uh, you know has blood in it for whatever reason, a protein. Uh, but if something doesn't light up, it's not as concerning. It may need to be followed, uh, but it does not need to be intervened for urgently. Well, let's uh, segue right into the treatments. Um, once someone knows that they have kidney cancer, what, what are their options? So it's a very complicated question because uh, kidney cancer overall is a surgical disease. In other words, uh, surgery is the mainstay of therapy uh, for uh, kidney cancer. But it depends on the size of the tumor. It depends on the age of the patient. It depends on the medical comorbidities of the patient. There's a lot. There like a what, lot other, of, what other medical problems that, they have? That's or, correct. So okay. if somebody's diabetic, if they're obese, if they have uh, bad heart disease, and if they have a one or two centimeter, one inch tumor, we know that uh, that patient may not actually 
have a problem from the cancer. They will have a problem from other okay. coexisting medical issues. So it's a it's a very long discussion with the patient. It's a it's a very complicated discussion with the patient regarding treatment. But the treatment usually is surgical if we do come to doing something. Um, and uh, uh, the other option is freezing the tumor, doing cryoablation, or what we call baking or cooking the tumor, which is radiofrequency ablation. Um, uh, there are certain intricacies about each, each therapy, but again, the mainstay of therapy is surgical. It has to be, for the lack of a better term, cut out. Now, it, since we have most people two kidneys, can you just remove the kidney that has cancer and be done with it? Uh, again, an excellent question. The, the answer to that usually is yes, and a lot of times that's what we do. But lately what we've been trying to do is trying to preserve the kidney function, which is very important for long-term benefit of that patient. It has nothing to do with cancer, but it has to do with other things such as diabetes, heart disease, hospitalizations, you name it. The more normal kidney meat, if you will, one has, the better off they are in the long term. Sometimes it's impossible to save the kidney, and we have to take the whole kidney out because of the size of the tumor, location of the tumor, the type of cancer it is. But if the tumor is amenable to what we call a partial nephrectomy, or removing just the tumor and leaving the rest of the normal kidney behind, we do everything we can to do that to leave the patient with a normal kidney tissue uh, for their for their remaining lifetime. So it sounds very specific to the individual. Absolutely, gonna... it's an individual. That's absolutely correct. There's no cookie cutter treatment for this. Absolutely. Uh, let me remind listeners: this is Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm your host Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Dr. Oleg Shapiro, an associate professor and vice chair of urology at Upstate, and we're discussing kidney cancer or renal um, cell carcinoma. Now, let me ask you, as, as a surgeon, can, when you go in to remove the kidney or part of the kidney, can you visualize the tumor with your eyes? Most of the time, we can. Uh, again, m- most of the surgeries that we do, uh, especially here at Upstate, uh, are robotic partial nephrectomies. In other words, we go in laparoscopically with the help of a da Vinci robot, and uh, we try to remove the tumor, leaving the rest of the healthy kidney behind. Um, and at that, at that moment, yes, of course, we see the tumor, I'm see, I see what I'm cutting, and I see what I'm cutting out. So the, absolutely, the answer to that question is yes. yes. Is it inside the kidney, or does it grow to the outside? So it doesn't usually read the book, and, uh, and unfortunately it doesn't ask me where it needs to grow. It, they, they can grow anywhere in the kidney. Uh, as surgeons, we have our preferred locations uh, because it makes it easier for us to, to remove them. But again, it's, uh, unfortunately, these tumors can grow in, completely inside. They can grow in the back. They can grow in the front, on top of them. It doesn't matter where. They will come from a kidney tissue at any spot. So, now, how fast do they grow once they appear? So it's a, it's a good question, and it depends on the grade of cancer. In other words, how aggressive the tumor is. So most of the people that present to us in 2019 present with small tumors because, again, they found incidentally, and majority of those tumors are what we call low to intermediate grade disease. In other words, the aggressiveness level is not very aggressive. Usually, more aggressive cancers present much larger, and those cancers tend to grow much faster, which is, again, common sense. The more aggressive something is, the the more likely it will grow faster. But again, most of the tumors that we do see, especially smaller ones, they do not grow that fast. And, and, and a lot of patients, uh, they can be observed. We don't need to operate on every single patient that we see a kidney cancer on. A lot of patients can actually be watched safely with serial CAT scans and not have any problems from their disease ever. Okay. You can track it because you know what the can- what cells are made up in the, that, that well that yes we can based on, truly based on size uh, we can we can safely say that this particular tumor will not do any damage to that patient in the next 5 years so the chance of that happening i like getting hit by a, by a bus yeah. outside wow. you know so very small now if you have cancer uh, in one kidney will it spread to the other kidney Theoretically, it can. Uh, cancer can spread anywhere, uh, especially kidney cancer. But again, smaller, less aggressive tumors are less likely to appear in the other kidney. Uh, most patients with tumors in both kidneys 
have some kind of a syndrome or genetic disease that associated with it. So for general population, it's extremely unusual to find tumors in both kidneys, especially at the same time, although not impossible. Where does it typically spread to when it does spread? Kidney cancer, again, is one of those diseases that doesn't like to read the book. Um, theoretically, it can spread to the lymph nodes, which are nearby. Uh, it can go to the lungs. It can go to the liver. Uh, it can go to the bone. It can go to the brain. It can go to a lot of different organs. The most preferred uh, places are lymph nodes nearby and the lungs. Okay. Um, well, I wanted to ask you also about, we, we hear about immunotherapy right. in, in different cancers. Is that being used in kidney cancer? Yes, it, ha- it's, it is being used. Kidney cancer is one of those diseases, and I, may, I mess that question all the time. Well, what about chemotherapy? What about radiation therapy? Well, kidney, kidney's job is to get rid of, quote-unquote, garbage in our body. And chemotherapy is garbage, right? So it's a poison. And, and kidney cancer is not sensitive to chemotherapy. The traditional chemotherapy that people hear about every day is not being used in kidney cancer. Radiation is also, unfortunately, not very effective in treating kidney cancer. So what we have to do is we have to use what we call immunotherapy, and these drugs are being developed very rapidly. Uh, there are tons of drugs out there that, that, that deal with this issue. Uh, they have very good success rates, and the immunotherapy is being used to treat advanced kidney cancer. And, of course, there are multiple trials which Upstate partic- participates in. the multinational, multi-institutional trials that we're a part of that patients can be eligible for if they, if they do have advanced, advanced disease. Okay. Um, let me ask you how kidney cancer affects someone's daily life. Does, once, once they know that they've got it, um, does it cause pain? Does it impact what they can eat, what they can do? How does it affect them day to day? When they're diagnosed, is that right? Yes. So, uh, well, it does not. So, uh, kidney cancer is known uh, in the textbooks for medical students as an internist disease because it can produce certain symptoms that are unexplainable. Uh, most of the time, this is found in patients with big tumors or aggressive tumors. So, the most of the tumors that we see in the 21st century are uh, not there. They're smaller. They're incidentally found, as we did discussed earlier mm-hmm. in, the, in this program. And those tumors do not produce symptoms. So patients can go on and do their daily living without absolutely any problems and not knowing that they have it. Okay. Absolutely no issues. Yeah, they, they can eat anything. They can drink anything. They, they don't have any symptomatology whatsoever, even if the tumor is large. And then, in turn, like once treatment begins or after surgery, do they, does that change the way they live? Uh, it sh- it should not. So, if somebody's uh, treated by surgery, uh, we assume for disease that's localized to the kidney and hasn't spread. After surgical recovery, uh, which again these days could be fairly short, given the fact that we do this robotically, patients can get can get back to their normal activity level within less than a week. Um, I have a lot of people coming back say, "I can't believe I'm playing golf five days after having a major operation." And that's true. Yes, they, they can play golf, wow. they can drive, they can travel, they can do whatever they want. So, so the, disease, the, the treatment options are fair, very advanced these days, and majority of the people can return to their normal activity levels very, very quickly. And once they've had this, do they have to be followed for it? Um, the answer to that is yes. Uh, it's relatively controversial how long you follow them for. Uh, the, some, some of the insurance companies and some of these professional organizations state, you know, five years. In my experience dealing with this particular disease is that I follow patients forever. And the reason is because I have seen people redevelop the disease somewhere else 10, 15, even 20 years down the road. Mm -hmm. So I don't like to let these patients go five years later saying, well, you're cancer-free, you're cured. Cured is a very strong term, and I'm very careful using it, especially in kidney cancer, because it can theoretically pop up somewhere else years if not decades later so something to be vigilant about absolutely you don't have to be followed as often as you were when you just were treated but as time goes on it becomes less and less frequent but nonetheless it happens not something to forget about that's correct Well, very good information. I appreciate you being here. My guest has been Upstate Urologist Dr. Oleg Shapiro. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon.
editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. I'd like to read an excerpt from Dr. Adam Philip Stern's short story, which he wrote when he was a student back in 2008. The story is called Faulty Armor, and it shows a young physician in training beginning to bond with his patient. The patient gazes back at me, and I again unexpectedly feel a connection with him, like he's not quite looking at me as his doctor, but as his peer, someone to translate what the medical types are trying to say. We're on the same team, against everyone else in the room. This moment of bonding with my patient should feel like a victory, but it does not. It is uncomfortable, and it has shaken my routine. It is not insecurity I'm feeling, but there is something about this encounter that I can't define, and as a fourth year, I live by definition. Something is different. There is an ambiguity I cannot overcome. His eyes are conveying a request. Ditch the script. Talk straight with me, friend. But hey, I wrote the script. I can't understand it. I've done dozens of these procedures already, but something about this patient makes me feel like I'm not really a doctor, that I'm a child in my father's clothes. He hasn't said or done anything out of the ordinary, but this gnawing in my gut won't subside. The procedure goes smoothly, and a pathology team, resident and attending, lackadaisically awaits the sample, microscope in hand. I deliver the tissue sample with a sense of urgency, and the pathologists accept it with absolutely none. I feel a burst of rage toward them, but I'm not sure why. Within minutes, everyone on the other side of the class knows that the patient's masses are malignant. This has been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week on HealthLink on Air, CBD products, male infertility, and head trauma. If you missed any of today's show, listen on demand on our website at healthlinkonair.org or find a podcast in iTunes and other podcast sources by searching for one word, HealthLink. I'm Amber Smith, thanking you for listening.